You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome to the Surveyor's Hour uh, on this Monday morning. My name is Jeff Lucas. I'm your host. I'm sitting in Birmingham, Alabama this morning. Um, we're on America's Web Radio. Uh, thanks for listening in. Um, again, uh, I'll give you my email address. Uh, it's Jeff at americaswebradio.com. So if uh, you have any questions or comments you would like to ask me as, as the host or uh, any comments about uh, guests that we have on the program or questions about guests we have on the program, please send me an email. Uh, I'll be looking for your uh, for your questions and comments. Um, my website is www.lucasandcompany.com, all spelled out. You can visit our website and learn a little bit more about me and my background and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, this week, uh, don't really have a, a guest, uh, I would say, but uh, my wife, Mary Lucas, is joining us on the program today. Uh, she's going to, she's agreed to come on um, uh, at, at some points in time. <laughs> Hasn't agreed to this full time yet. But uh, she's going to help me um, give me a, a sounding board uh, while I discuss some of these issues that we've been discussing over the last six or seven weeks. Uh, also to kind of keep me uh, on track. And, um, and she's, not, she's not a surveyor, so... Uh, uh, when, when I start talking a lot of jargon, hopefully Mary's going to uh, uh, slow me down a little bit and, and maybe uh, have me back up and, and explain a few things. But anyway, uh, Mary, uh, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, but I already have a correction. Okay. Well, okay. What, what's that correction? <laughs> We're actually coming from Helena. Alabama, which is a little uh, suburb of uh, the Birmingham area. Okay. I All just right, well, thought I'd put a little plug in for our little Helena, Alabama. Well, that's why I have you on the program. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. okay <laughs> but it's good to be you. with your listeners, Jeff. I, um, I think I'll enjoy doing this with you. Well, good, good. And you're not a surveyor, right? I am not a surveyor, but I've been married to a surveyor for 40 years. So that okay. makes me, I should get some, like, um, uh, I should get credit, right? Credit for that? Okay, yeah, I, I agree. You should get credit for that. Um, <laughs> so, but you, you, you certainly, uh, you've been around surveying a long time. And, you know, you probably don't even know this, Mary, but um, many times in, in my conferences I'll talk about you know the qualities of a great surveyor, and and I always bring you up. You've got the great qualities of of a surveyor, and that is that great quality is being a people person. You know, being a if you want to be a good retracement surveyor, and I think I've already mentioned this on this program, a good retracement surveyor is a people person, somebody who can go out and meet people, talk to people, and get information out of people, and uh, so uh, that's a. That's another strong point you have, you have, well, Mary. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you. I, before so, we uh, go any further, I think we 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 do we need to do the shout out to the grandchildren because they're listening. Okay. So um, I will 
<clears throat> with this COVID-19, um, there's no school um, in Alabama right now or for the rest of the year, which is so sad. Um, but we at home, we have studying with their mom, Amanda. Uh, we have our oldest granddaughter, Clara, who is eight years old. And then we have Hallie, who is six years old. And then last but not least, we have Noel, who is four years old. But you know what, Papa? In two days, she turns five. Well, that's great. I can hardly Isn't believe that, that they've. Uh, yeah, I, I can hardly believe that they're they're getting that old. It just seems like yesterday, right? <laughs> that's right. Well, tell us, um, tell the audience a little bit about you. And what, um, you're doing, and what you're currently doing. Well, I currently, I work for Lucas and Company. Um, I take care of uh, the Lucas letter. Uh, for our premium subscribers, I grade their tests and issue their certificates. Um, and also seek state approvals for the, the states that require pre-approval. Um, I also um, take care of your seminar business. I um, negotiate with the um, different state societies, um, um, get a contract with them, and um, set dates and make all your travel arrangements and plan things out in that way. So that's, that's what I do from home. Okay. Uh, well, I have a correction for you. It's not my seminar okay. business. It's, it's your seminar business. <laughs> uh, every time I try, every time I try to control anything, I get in trouble. So it's, it's, let's, let's be clear. It is your seminar business. Okay. Oh well. Okay. Well, yeah. can you describe the newsletter? Just can you describe the newsletter to the uh, um, to the audience? Yeah, just, you you, know? you send out a monthly newsletter um, on different surveying topics. Um, we offer two different kinds of um, newsletters. We have the premium, which is um, the newsletter, but it comes with a 10-question test. And um, they read the letter, and they take the test and send it in to me for grading. And then once they pass the test, I issue a certificate of completion. Each um, month, um, they have an opportunity to earn 1.5 continuing edu education credits. And so um, that's, um, that's what I'm most busy with um, mm -hmm. um, on a daily basis is, is getting tests graded and their certificates um, out to them. Um, it's the first thing I do every morning when I log on. I I look for people's tests, and as I know, they're they're anxious to to know if they passed. And and most of our subscribers pass their tests with flying colors. Rarely, very rarely, do we ever have anybody that doesn't pass a test. I mean, I I can count on maybe one hand how many times somebody has um, not passed a test. So it's um, you know you make you make the newsletter very interesting and 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 challenging. And um, so, and then we also have a um, we also have a standard uh, subscription, and that is just simply the newsletter. <clears throat> it does not come with um, 
with the test. Standard subscriptions run $25 a year, and the premium subscription runs 180 a year. And, of course, they yeah. can contact us through our website, lucasandcompany.com. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there's uh, a little bit of a, a problem I know we've run into to a certain extent with the newsletter is it's not an online course where the instructor is, is, a, is not mm-hmm. available. It's a correspondence it's a correspondence. Course where, right, and so there's a difference between an online course and a correspondence course. Um, in, in that the instructor is uh, generally available, and we get questions about that a lot. You know, um, mm-hmm. and some states don't will not um, provide uh, will cut the uh, the credit for the taking the course in half if it's an online course, and some won't even allow online courses where uh, where the instructor is not available while the course is being taken. So that's that's an important uh, issue uh, for a lot of people. Um, also, one other thing I'll just mention, it's not just the newsletter, it's the newsletter and uh, an accompanying case. And so it's generally, the newsletter is generally based on a court, a court case, a court opinion, and so it's the, the two-page newsletter, generally speaking, and an attached case. And what we found over, over time is but the, the cases, the opinions will vary in length, so it, the, the newsletter varies in length uh, from month to month. But on average, it takes people about an hour and a half to read the newsletter, the opinion, and take the test. Isn't that, isn't that about right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Now, what All right. were you going to talk else? about today? No, I was wondering what you were going to talk about today. Well, uh, eventually, I want to get to... Um, I want to get to um, deed interpretation. Uh, mm-hmm. For the last several weeks, um, we've been talking about, uh, w- we've been generally following along with my uh, How to Make a Bounded Determination That Will Win in Court seminar. And so that's kind of been the topic, um, going to court, uh, having a survey that will win in court, you know, all things being equal. Um, and so we've talked about that. We've talked about the law as it relates to surveying and boundaries. And then for the last couple of weeks, uh, we, well, we had Milton Denny on uh, two weeks ago, so we had a guest, and we're still working on getting some other guests to come on the program. Uh, and when we get a guest, we'll, we'll depart from what we've been doing and, and talk to the guest. But basically for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about evidence and the rules of evidence, and then um, last week uh, we we started with, um, or I guess continued a discussion that we were having about parole evidence, which is basically what I was talking about. Uh, um, what I was talking about earlier <clears throat> about uh, a good surveyor as a people person, because oral evidence, as we've discussed here over the last week or so, is uh, is very important. And it's, it's evidence that surveyors oftentimes uh, ignore. And, and one of the reasons for that is um, surveyors just, you know, a lot of surveyors, me included, just generally don't like to uh, get involved with talking to people when we're out working in the field. But if you're trying to gather evidence as a retracement surveying, uh, oral evidence is, is, um, is sometimes uh, super critical uh, because the, the only... 
the only evidence that's actually needed uh, in, in court to make a boundary determination is um, are, are the people, are the landowners. And we discussed the case last week of Dowdell versus Cotham, and that case basically was completely decided. There was there was a survey involved, but the survey was was not all that good, and uh, the surveyor was uh, criticized by the court for uh, some of his activity and 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 for some of his lack of activity. I mean, he never went to the field. That was that was the biggest problem. He never went to the field. He never talked to the people. He never talked to Mrs. Cotham. He never talked to Mr. Cotham. He didn't. He talked to his. Um, he talked to his client Dowdell, but um, he, he never went to the field. So he he ignored the most, and he never talked to old timer. We talked. We discussed old timer last last week. Old timer is that guy or gal who lives in the neighborhood and has been around forever and knows everybody's business. But sometimes old timer knows something about the property lines involved. And that was uh, absolutely what happened in that case was uh, Eamon Halsey came in and testified uh, as to how the boundary line between Dowdell and Cotham had been originally uh, created by a common grantor. So, um, yeah, so the, the most critical evidence in a boundary determination and the only evidence actually needed um, is... Um, you need a judge with subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, that judge <clears throat> needs to get in personam jurisdiction over the parties in the case. That simply means the judge gets personal jurisdiction over, in that in that case, over the Dowdells, over Dowdell, and over the Cottons. Um, that happens by papers being served and, and answers being um, being filed. And then uh, the parties come into court, and in the final analysis, um, that's all that the judge actually needs in order to make a boundary determination is a is a plaintiff and a defendant, and that's basically what happened in that case. Um, I, d- I did get a couple of comments uh, about last week's case. Uh, I received some comments from actually from uh, uh, a couple of our uh, subscribers to the newsletter, and one is. Um, who won the case? Uh, we we kind of ran short of time last week when I was discussing the case. We had gotten through all the testimony, and sometimes these things are uh, less obvious than I think uh, that they are. But um, the, the Cothams, their testimony, and Old Timer, who was Eamon Hol- Holsey in the case, um, they uh, they won the case uh, because the boundary line had been determined. Uh, by a common grantor uh, who was who was selling both properties uh, and who identified the fence line running through the gully as as the true and correct property line. So the Cothams won that case, <clears throat> and the surveyor um, actually was was um, was, was criticized uh, by the uh, trial court judge, and, um, and and one of the claims that Dowdell was making. Was that um, since since they had proffered a survey, uh, the surveyor's name was Burns. Since they had proffered a survey of the property, that the Cottons had to proffer a survey as well. The Cottons had to come up with a uh, survey as well. 
and uh, there's there's no requirement for uh, surveys to be entered into the evidence uh, in a boundary dispute case. Um, as, as I said, the only people needed in a boundary dispute case are the plaintiff and the defendant. So um, that was an argument that uh, that didn't uh, that didn't go over well with the court. Um, also, just while we're wrapping this one up, uh, I like to look through what we call the black letter law, and that's in the head notes of of our uh, our newsletter or our opinion that go- that's part of our newsletter. Um, and I just wanted to read a couple of those here. Let's see. Rules of procedure, summary judgment. Um, head note number five. We actually did this case uh, in March for, for the newsletter. Head note number five. The mere existence of a recorded deed does not in and of itself give us conclusive evidence of the property's boundaries. So uh, as, as many, and we're going to talk about deed interpretation. Uh, we'll start with that when we come back from the break. But um, um, we're, we're going to talk about deed interpretation. A, a, a deed uh, does not, in and of itself, give us conclusive evidence of the property's boundaries. It's just, it's just evidence. Uh, the deed is simply evidence itself. And so uh, there's a there's a process uh, involved in interpreting deeds, and that's what we're going to talk about. Um, and this um, also one of the things that Dow Dill was claiming was defamation of title or slander of title. And this is um, this is a charge. They they didn't charge the surveyor with it. Uh, Dow Dill had hired the surveyor. The um, Jeff, um, let's uh, let's go ahead and take that break, Jeff. Okay. Quick stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your back-friendly stake. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, welcome back, folks. Uh, Jeff Lucas here with uh, with Mary Lucas, my wife. Mary, say hello. Hello. <laughs> All right, so we're <laughs> back. Um. My my daytime job is with uh, ESP and Associates. I'm the uh, I am the Alabama Division Manager for ESP. That's Engineering, Surveying, Planning. 
Um, and ESPN Associates is located in uh, the Charlotte area, actually Fort Mill, South Carolina, but Fort Mill is just a, uh, a suburb of, uh, of Charlotte. And uh, ESP Associates can be found at www.espassociates.com. So visit the website, give us a call if you're in need of engineering, surveying, or planning services. Okay, we'll just wrap up this uh, Tennessee case real quick. I just wanted to mention slander of title. Um, that was a claim that Dowdell had because of the signs, if you were with us last week, because of the signs that the Costums put up when the uh, when Burns had completed his survey and uh, jumped jumped the ditch, so to speak, and, and drove in pins uh, next to a fence of convenience that the Costums had built, not as a boundary line, but built to keep their cows from running into the ditch. Um, slander of title this is, is getting a lot of This is the case that you usually do in the, in the mock trial, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you actually played yeah. Mrs. Cotham on a couple of occasions, I right? I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so you, you remember this, this case, right? This was an interesting right? case. Yes, I do. Oh, yeah. yeah it was very it was, interesting. It was a case. war between neighbors. That started when the surveyor drove the pen in the ground That's in a place right. where it had never, ever been before. That's right. Yeah, um, I, I meant to ask you about that. Yeah, this is, this is, this is uh, the case that our mock trial is loosely based on. Well, actually, not too loosely. We, we held pretty – the script is good enough, uh, out, right out of the opinion, where you could just – I mean, it writes itself, Right. <laughs> right. But yeah, slander of title is a. Um, I'm seeing more and more of this. Um, usually, the charge is made against the the adjoining uh, neighbor, and this is this is what happens in boundary disputes. Generally speaking, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, when the surveyor starts the war, as Burns did in this case, uh, the neighbors sue each other. They don't necessarily sue the surveyor, so the surveyor causes the train wreck and then skates. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the surveyor gets the surveyor gets sued, and um, one of the you know most surveyors sort of they're concerned about you know a charge of negligence, okay. Um, but negligence can be um, really not very you can be negligent and not have very very much in the way of damages now. If, if a doctor is negligent and amputates the wrong leg, then the damages are going to be enormous. And the damages figured for negligence are, uh, they figured the damages on negligence um, based on uh, what it would take to, put the plaint- to make the plaintiff whole again, to put the plaintiff back in the position that the plaintiff would have been in had the tortfeasor uh, the bad guy, the surveyor, uh, the, the bad doctor, the negligent professional, had not ever showed up on the scene. Um, so damages can be very significant um, if if we're talking about a doctor amputating the wrong leg. But what about a surveyor who surveys the wrong piece of property? What about a surveyor like, like Burns in this case? He jumps over the ditch. Um, let's say he was negligent doing it. Uh, he's 20 feet south of the ditch. He didn't... He didn't He's, he would be negligent because he there's uh, critical information that he just ignored. The testimony of uh, of the neighbors, what they had to think about the boundary, um, and and some other critical information that he just ignored. Never left the field, uh, never visited the site. Um, 
So he never jumps left the, the field? ditch. Never left the office. Never left That's the office. Right. Never went to the yeah. field. Never, never went to the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he he drives in pins uh, next to uh, Cotham's fence, but he he didn't he didn't cut any timber down. He didn't he didn't kill any cattle. He didn't um, um, he didn't cut down any. Uh, he, he didn't uh, destroy any crops. He just he put a pin in the ground. He put two pins in the ground at each corner of the fence. So he was negligent, but how how much, uh, what are the damages? Well, the damages are almost negligible. Um, he, he drove two pins in the ground. And so um, what would it take to make the Cotham's whole again? Uh, well, remove the pins. I mean, so there's there's no money there in, a, in, in many cases in a negligence charge. Now, a lot of surveyors will say, well, Jeff, what about the attorney's fees? You know, is, and they, they had to they had to shell out a lot of money to take this thing to court, but there were damage there, correct? Well, generally speaking, no. Attorney's fees are not considered damages. So um, if you take the attorney's That's fees silly. factor, well, it's called the American rule. Okay. It's called, it's called the American rule. Mm-hmm. In, in the United States of America, there's only three ways you get your money back if you go to court, even if you win. Um, you have to have a contract uh, that allows you to get your money back. Then your client, whoever you know, whoever you have a contract with, if, if that client sues you and your contract says you can get your money back, uh, your fees back for attorney's fees, then you can. Um, there has to be legislation somewhere that says you can get your, your fees back. Uh, or there has to be, there's a court-made rule that isn't universal, but there is a court-made rule, and that rule goes like this. You read it many times in boundary dispute cases because uh, the rule uh, the, the rule is, um, is specific to that kind, of a, that kind of an issue. If Actor A will just say <clears throat> that, was, uh, that was the Cothams, we'll just say that was Mrs. Cotham, Actor A, because of the activity of Actor B, Dowdell, and Actor C, Burns, his surveyor, if Actor A has to go in and defend herself, defend the title, for instance, uh, in, a, in a court fight, because of the activities of, of uh, Dowdell hiring Burns uh, to do the survey and, um, uh, and then Cotham has to defend herself in court, uh, the court-made rule says that um, then... Actor A can get uh, her her fees back um, if she wins the case. You know, if it was if the case was, shouldn't have ever happened. So that's a court made rule. So there's only three ways. Um, what contract, about if you sue for um, that kind of thing? You countersuit. Countersuit. Still, can you, you do that? You yeah, you can. You can countersuit. Matter of fact, uh, for, in this case, for your damages. Well, the, or for the court costs. And, mm-hmm. Well, that's what I'm saying. They because of the it's the American rule. Um, the, the court costs and attorney's fees aren't considered damages. That's okay. That's the American rule. Okay. I'm not saying I'd like to be like Europe or anything like that, but over in Europe, this is what they talk about when they talk about tort reform. You were in the insurance business. You, you've heard, you, you know about torts. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, tort reform means that um, 
it would be like a winner take all kind of situation. If if you go in and you there's a lawsuit and you're either the plaintiff or the defendant, doesn't matter. Whoever wins, then the loser has to pay all of the all of the costs of the litigation. So, um, it, and if that's what they talk about when they talk about tort reform, that that the, that the fees would actually be hey, like Brad, do, do awarded to, do this, to uh, the winner. Zoom and, thing uh, and, with uh, General Dix. And uh, did you hear something? I did. Okay. All right. I don't know. And they. Uh, and the. Uh, Maybe we should explain uh, to the audience what. <laughs> what? We both we both heard something in our ear, but. Yeah. But, hey, you you turned you turned off your microphone. You turned off your microphone. Okay, we're having all kinds of technical difficulties here now, folks. Are you are you back with us? You got to hold it down for four seconds. Okay. Well, looks like we lost Mary. Um, so we've spent enough time. We've spent enough time on this case. It's time to it's time to move on. Uh, I want to talk about uh, deed interpretation today. Um, because that uh, next to uh, next to oral evidence, of course, uh, or maybe even before uh, oral type evidence, um, the first the, the first piece of evidence that any surveyor is going to uh, look at and consider is going to be the deed, the client's deed, and possibly the deeds uh, deeds of the joiners, which is um, not always totally necessary. Jeff we're, gonna, uh, Jeff, we're going to need to go to a break right quick. Okay. All right, we'll take a break. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your back-friendly stake. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. 
Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. Um, well, we lost Mary due to some technical difficulties, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to continue with uh, our topic today, which was uh, uh, deed interpretation. Uh, real quick, though, I will wrap up this slander of uh, title um, discussion. Uh, the elements of slander or title are the plaintiff has an interest in the property. The defendant published false statements about uh, the title to plaintiff's property. The defendant acted maliciously, and the false statements approximately caused the plaintiff a pecuniary loss. So the, the, whole, the, whole, the only really point I want to make here without going into uh, slander, a deep dive into slander title is uh, as opposed to negligence, where there could, where the damages could be almost negligible or, or very, very small or, or nominal, so to speak, um, there could be substantial, uh, there could be substantial damages with a slander of uh, a slander of title uh, case. In that the the loss, the the, the the way they figure the damages in slander of title is it's the reduction in the sellability of the property due to the slanderous accusation or due to the cloud that has been put on the title. And a surveyor can certainly put a cloud on someone's title by um, overlapping the boundaries, by uh, putting the pen, by just what Burns did, uh, jumped over the ditch, drove pins in the ground, and now ostensibly the Cotham and the Dowdell's deeds uh, overlap, and, uh, and Burns, in essence, uh, put uh, a cloud on part of Cotham's title, even though Dowdell was the one charging the Cothams with slander of title. So we won't get too deep into that. That's all I really wanted to say. So let's talk about deed interpretation. As, as I said, uh, or was saying right before the break, uh, the deed is uh, maybe the most important piece of evidence, um, uh, certainly um, oral testimony or, or parole evidence is very, very important, and really, besides the deed, is really the only evidence that the courts are going to need in order to make a boundary determination. Although surveyors are still deemed helpful, um, the surveyors and surveying, um, that is what we would consider to be extrinsic evidence. Uh, that the things that exist outside the deed, um, unless of course the deed calls for a survey, and then and then it's it's collateral evidence. The the the, the deed calls for a survey. Um, a lot of a lot of states, Georgia, where I, where I, um, where I um, uh, operate uh, a lot, uh, the deed sometimes the description in the deed simply says, in accordance with that survey. Uh, performed by you know XYZ surveying dated such and such and such and such, um, and then they record those surveys, and you would go down and uh, pull that survey uh, out of the out of the uh, superior court records, and uh, it's so that's collateral evidence. So uh, that's the difference between collateral evidence and extrinsic evidence. Is um, um, 
a, a deed, uh, extrinsic evidence exists outside the deed, that is the very nature or the very description of, uh, of surveying property is uh, it would be extrinsic evidence that could be used to help determine um, how to uh, interpret that deed. So um, the first, uh, the first thing, the the, the most, imp- and I'll talk. I'm going to talk about the rules of construction uh, to a certain extent too. What are the rules of construction? Well, the, the rules of construction are court-made rules that have been uh, developed and generated for centuries by the courts. First, the courts in England, and then. Um, when the United States became a country, and we and our the vast majority of our fifty states uh, all adopted the English common law uh, at the time that we became a country, and at the time of statehood, adopted the English common law. Some I'm, I'm sure there's some states that didn't. Possibly Hawaii, uh, maybe Texas, uh, maybe some others, but the vast majority adopted the English common law as it would be as it would be later modified by the United States Constitution, the state constitution, uh, the laws of the state, the laws of the federal government. Uh, so we, we have this, this rich history of, of law that has been handed down to us. And so, and so for, for centuries, uh, you know, the courts, um, and, you know, for as long as we can remember, or uh, as you can look back, there's always been issues of interpreting written documents. So the courts have have simply uh, created tools, and they're called the rules of construction, tools for interpreting um, written documents. Now, those written documents can be uh, it can be contracts, it can be deeds. They use the rules of construction uh, to interpret. Uh, legislation. They use uh, they use it to interpret uh, the rules of construction. They use it to uh, interpret the Constitution. So um, those are what I'll refer to as the rules of construction. But the number one rule of construction, the number one rule of deed interpretation, is what we're trying to do uh, when we're reading this deed is we're trying to find the intent of the grantor. And as many courts have said, to a lesser extent, the grantee. We're looking for intent. That is the number one issue. When we pull up a deed, we're trying to find what did this grant, if we're looking at a deed, what did this grantor intend to grant? That's the number one rule of construction. That is the number one issue when it comes to deed interpretation. Um, Now, uh, one of the things we need to realize when we're talking about deeds, and and for the most part, uh, I'm talking to, uh, uh, I imagine I'm talking to surveyors. Uh, we're talking uh, maybe some landowners, but the the most the, the thing that we focus in on the most would be the description of the property. Uh, we don't have to worry all that much about uh, other aspects of the deed. Is it a valid deed? Uh, generally speaking, if it's recorded and we have a copy of it, you can go ahead and uh, basically assume that, uh, that it's a valid deed. If it's not a valid deed, that would be a legal discussion. That would be a legal argument that it's not a valid deed. That is not the surveyor's argument. We don't argue uh, the legal issues. We have to, as we discussed weeks ago, we, we need to understand the law. We need to apply the law, but we don't argue the law. That is the jo- that's the job of the attorneys. 
That's what the attorneys do. They argue the law. Uh, that's what an adverse possession case is. It's an argument over what the title to the property is. Uh, and, and if it's adverse, if it's adverse possession, usually that will be a change in the title to the property. So those are legal questions. Those are legal arguments. Those aren't our arguments. So what we what we focus in on uh, the land surveyor, and I, I'm assuming if, if we've got landowners listening to us as well is we're focusing in on the description of the property, sometimes referred to as the legal description. That's what we're going to focus in on, and that's what that's what these rules of construction are all about. Um, and we need to realize that uh, going in, that the very the the, the very act of uh, the the process of writing down on a piece of paper. Um, something that exists uh, out in the world, uh, something that, that physically exists, a, a chunk of dirt, a piece of land, a parcel of land, um, describing something that exists uh, out in the field, so to speak, or out in nature, onto a piece, onto a, uh, a, a piece of paper. The, the very uh, act of doing that uh, is imbued with uh, ambiguity. It's imbued with uncertainty, primarily because, uh, and surveyors know this, we don't survey in a vacuum. We don't survey in a vacuum. So we, we survey uh, out, out in the open, out in the outdoors, sometimes in the woods, maybe the desert, wherever you are, and we know that there, is, there, there will be uncertainty in the measurements there will be uh, uh, there will be systematic errors uh, that occur. There will be um, uh, there will be uh, errors in measurement. There will be there's all kinds of factors that come into play. We're, again, we don't survey in a vacuum. I can go out and 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 survey uh, one square acre um, uh, in a field. Uh, and 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 go into the office and write a legal description of that uh, acre tied to some control point somewhere, like a section corner, and another surveyor can go out there tomorrow and we'll find differences between what I measured and what I wrote down in my legal description, what I measured, and what they actually find in the field. So to a certain level, uh, deeds always have some level of uncertainty to them. They always have some level of uncertainty to them. And the other factor we have to throw in here is is who can't write a legal description for a deed? Um, there are some jurisdictions where that um, that activity has been restricted, but for the most part, uh, for the most part, landowners, uh, or farmers, attorneys, real estate people, um, anybody can get a deed form these days. There's this thing called Legal Zoom, if you haven't heard of it, and there's other uh, similar um, uh, products like Legal Zoom. You can you can go to Legal Zoom and you can get yourself a, a template for a deed. Now all you need is a legal description to to be put in as Exhibit A in that deed, and and you're good to go. So uh, uh, there's a that's a huge difference between. That's a huge difference between deed interpretation and contract interpretation. Contracts, as the courts say, will be closely construed. As long as the language in the contract, and we're not describing property, generally speaking, in a contract. Okay, we're, descri- we're using contract language. 
and if the language is is pretty clear as as and and has standard meanings, then extrinsic evidence is not going to be allowed to come in and help interpret a contract. And that's a big difference between contract interpretation and deed interpretation, because the 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 physical act of describing a piece of property that that exists um, out in the field somewhere uh, is imbued with uncertainty. Generally speaking, the courts uh, the courts are a little bit la- a little more lax with allowing extrinsic evidence to come in and help to interpret the deed, a, a deed that's ambiguous, a deed that is uh, that has um, uh, discrepancies in it, or one that's being contested. And, and that was the scenario we had last week with Cotham versus Dowdell, uh, if you recall. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Co- uh, Mrs. Cotham was all about her deed dimension of not, uh, for a road frontage of 900.9 feet, 900.90 feet. And um, Surveyor Burns came in and testified, well, her, her legal description is a bust. What does that mean? A bust means uh, it doesn't close. It, it, there's a closure error. So, um, uh, so when we have uncertainty, when we have ambiguities, then um, extrinsic evidence, the courts will allow extrinsic evidence to come in. That's what's extrinsic evidence, anything outside the deed. It could be a survey. It could be old-timer. Old-timer is extrinsic evidence. It's pro- That would be parole testimony or oral testimony. Um, a- anything else um, that exists outside the deed, uh, other people other people who may know something about that conveyance, uh, circumstances existing at the time the conveyance was made. Anything outside the deed, uh, generally speaking, will be allowed to come in to help explain uh, this ambiguous deed. Um, since we do, since there is always some level of uncertainty, there's, a, there's another rule that we need to keep in mind when we're interpreting deeds, and that is the de minimis rule. De minimis non curat lex. Uh, that roughly translates to um, the law does not concern itself with trivialities. The law does not concern itself with trivialities. So these these small minor discrepancies, these small minor um, uh, ambiguities uh, between what what was written in the deed as the legal description of the property and what we find in the field are generally to be ignored. Uh, except that surveyors have a hard time uh, ignoring them. We talked, I think, the first week I was on the program, we talked about uh, the pincushion corner. Jeff, we Multiple can't, we monuments can't, uh, in the ground, all ostensibly representing one corner in legal contemplation. Well, that's... Jeff, for, for with that being part, said, we're going to need to take a break. Uh, we'll be back with okay. Jeff right after this. Quick stakes. Is your answer to staking lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes? Have you tried? Sort of need to watch your time, please. Get a pen and paper and write down uh, this number. We'll only have about ten minutes after when we come back. Three eight seven. Or go to quickstake.com. That's Q U I K S T A K. Okay, we break. It doesn't change. Every thirteen and a half minutes. Basically, it's, we break on the quarter hour, 15 after, today. 30 after, 45 after. 
okay. a little bit before that. We try to get it around 13 and a half minutes. But, uh, you right. know, if Whether we're close, cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or All taking right. the family okay. on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you what need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim I, Weber she, every uh, Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. She, she inadvertently turned off her microphone, and then when she was quick working sticks. on that... Does your survey supply dealer have quick sticks? Oh, okay. If not, oh. demand that they start Alrighty. carrying quick sticks. Well, we'll be Did you know that quick sticks are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your back-friendly stake. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. Uh, we will. I'm going to attempt to uh, wrap up our discussion on deed interpretation. Although I have a feeling this is going to go into our next program, but we were talking about extrinsic evidence and how uh, the co- the courts are generally liberal about allowing extrinsic evidence to come in to help explain a deed that's uh, ambiguous, that is um, that is um, in dispute, uh, that is um, well. Let me just let me just read here. Uh, I have some that. Where it is, um, construction is doubtful. That's the word I was looking for. The construction of the deed is doubtful. Um, they don't do that so much with contracts. Don't do that so much with legislation. Don't do that so much with the Constitution, allowing people to come in and, and help to interpret the, the intent. So number one thing we're looking for is intent, intent to the grantor and to a lesser extent the grantee. So we... Um, uh, and intent is king. Uh, that is that is the number one thing we're looking for. But if intent is king, then ambiguities are absolutely the keys to the kingdom. Because if the deed is is can be determined to be ambiguous, uh, doubtful, in dispute, more than one possible uh, description of uh, or location of the property on the ground, uh, then that is uh, then. Um, that is when we know uh, for sure, uh, when we're trying to interpret a deed, that extrinsic evidence uh, will be allowed in to help explain the deed. The deed no longer can explain itself. Uh, and there's, there's, so there's two types of ambiguities that we need to we need to be aware of. There's what's called a patent ambiguity on the face of it, on the face of the deed itself. It's ambiguous. Now again, we're focusing in on the legal description. Let's take our case from last week, Cotham, uh, Dowdell versus Cotham. Burns testified that um, the uh, the Cotham's deed had a bust in it, and I forgot what he came up with. It had like a 50-foot or 68-foot 60, bust in it, something like that. According to Burns' testimony, there was a bust in the deed. Uh, that means that the deed didn't close, and 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 for those um, uh, for those who aren't surveyor types, it, it means that when you start at the beginning, the point of beginning, and you run the geometry, the bearings and distances, the angles and distances around uh, this piece of property or around that deed, the legal description that is uh, that is uh, describing the property. And you come back to you're supposed to go around uh, 
start a point at a point of beginning, follow the geometry around, and then you're supposed to come back to the same point. And if you do, then the 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 the, the legal description, as we say in surveying uh, in surveying jargon, closes. The deed closes. Um, well, this one didn't. So there was a um, the Cotham's deed didn't, according to Burns. So there was a let's just call it a there was a fifty foot. It didn't close by 50 feet. So now it is impossible to know, through just through the deed alone, exactly what the configuration of the Cotham's uh, property is. Extrinsic evidence must be brought in, has to be brought in, in order to determine where that bust is. There's something wrong with one of those dimensions, uh, or maybe a couple of the dimensions in that deed because it didn't close, it did not mathematically close. And so um, extrinsic evidence has, we cannot tell from the deed alone, we cannot tell, uh, the legal description in the deed alone, we cannot tell where that 50-foot discrepancy is. So you have to go to the, you, this is when a survey uh, would be, would, would come in handy as if the surveyor went out there and uh, found out where the 50-foot bust in the legal description uh, actually exists. And, and, and we'll, we'll just look at a, a, another rule of construction. Another rule of construction is, um, and we'll talk more about the rules in a little bit, but another rule of construction, when the deed is doubtful, another rule of construction used by the courts is those things that are most certain are given the most amount of weight, and those things that are least certain are given the least amount of weight. So if we can find where the 50, uh, through extrinsic evidence or a survey, we can find where the 50, where the 50 foot uh, error is in that legal description, then that would be the most uncertain aspect of that deed, of that legal description in the deed. And therefore, uh, and I tell surveyors this all the time, you shouldn't hesitate to, uh, to correct the error, uh, to put the 50 feet where the 50 feet needs to be. Uh, so that's that would be a pat, that's a patent ambiguity. Uh, there's another type of ambiguity. And it's called latent ambiguity. A latent ambiguity doesn't exist on the face of the document itself. It's not it's not patent. It's latent. It's it. We find the latent ambiguity when we go to the field and start gathering extrinsic evidence. Uh, tr- when we're when there's an attempt to find that piece of property described in the deed uh, in the field. So an example of a latent ambiguity would be uh, the, the deed calls for the southwest quarter of the northeast quarter of a certain section, township, and range, a certain principal meridian, and a certain jurisdiction. It could be any of the public land survey states. It could be the state of Alabama. Uh, the southwest quarter of the northeast quarter, section 20, uh, range uh, township 22 south, range 7 west of the Huntsville Principal Meridian. Well, that is that legal description is completely unambiguous. That description describes only one piece, only one chunk of dirt, only one piece of property on uh, only one 40, nominal 40-acre tract that exists on the North American continent. You can't be any any uh, any less ambiguous than that. It only describes one piece of property out of out of uh, 1.4 billion acres of the, of the public domain. 
But the problem is when we go to the field and we are attempting to locate that southwest quarter, the northeast quarter, Section 20, and we go out uh, to the field. And uh, Now, that, that description implicates the center of the section, what's often referred to as the center quarter. So we go to the field and we go to the center quarter and we see that um, we see multiple monuments in the ground. We saw, you know, a pincushion. We have a pincushion corner at the center at the center quarter. So that's uh, that would be evidence that we have a latent ambiguity on our hands. But um, a latent ambiguity would also uh, could also be found. Uh, I would say, um, well, let's just take. We have two intellectually honest surveyors. Both surveyors go out and attempt to survey the same piece of property. They ostensibly have the same pool of evidence. They have the same deeds. They're going out in the field. They're finding the same monumentation in the field. And if those two surveyors can come up with two different locations uh, for for that property on the ground or two different locations for any particular line of that property, then you would have a latent ambiguity on your hands. But uh, I, I think it can be, it's, even, it's a little, even more simple than that. I believe that the intellectually honest surveyor uh, can recognize between his or her own two ears can recognize in their own in their own brain um, when when they have uh, a latent ambiguity on their hands when there's more than one possible location for the uh, uh, for the property uh, given given the given the given the, the deeds uh, the, the deed of the property itself the, the adjoining deeds other extrinsic evidence other surveys. So now you would have a latent ambiguity on your hands. So uh, amb- intent is king when it comes to interpretation of deeds, but um, uh, ambiguities uh, are absolutely the keys to interpretation because when when the uh, when there are ambiguities, uh, either latent or patent, then that means the extrinsic evidence is in play and must be used in order to. Um, in order to in- uh, properly interpret the, the deed. All right, which uh, the four corners doctrine. I, I basically talked all around the four corners doctrine. But the four corners doctrine means when you're interpreting a deed and you're looking for intent, you search, as they say, the four corners of the deed. You you search. You look. You read every word. You read. Uh, you 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 look at. Um, you look at the. Um, granting clause, you look at the habendum clauses, you look at the legal descriptions, and uh, you're trying to find the intent uh, of the grantor and to a lesser extent the grantee. But as I said, for the most part, surveyors will be working with the legal descriptions. We are probably just about out of time here um, I want to pick this up next time around uh, we'll finish up our discussion uh, if I don't have a guest I'm trying to get some guests on the program um, but if I don't get a guest on next week then uh, we'll finish up our discussion on uh, deed interpretation uh, then in the meantime if you need to get in touch with me uh, write me an email at Jeff at AmericasWebRadio.com. Send me your questions and your comments. 
Um, you can also visit me on my website, www.lucasandcompany.com. And visit ESPN Associates, www.espassociates.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.